The following program may offend those with delicate constitutions, Baptists, FCC commissioners, and the former Soviet Republic of Uzbekistan. It's Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Transportation. Transport. Choo-choo, vroom-vroom. His big transportation achievement as mayor of South Bend was to transform the old Studebaker factory into what they went on to call the largest mixed-use technology campus in the Midwest. I don't know if they achieved that goal. Right now, it seems to be an office park with a customized paper cup printing business, uh, a satellite office of Purdue University, and South Bend Sewer Department. That's all located in the old Studebaker factory, the old one. But back in 2017... When reporters weren't quite sure how to pronounce Buttigieg, he was interviewed about the old Studebaker factory on the PRI program, The World. I walked through with South Bend's mayor, Pete Buttigieg. We think about the big three now, but we used to have a big four. Studebaker was a major, major American auto company. And we were kind of a company town for that. People know about us because of Notre Dame, but the truth is we really grew up around industry. I figure the reason this building's here is it's the one building that was so big that nobody could afford to blow it up. Well, he saved it. And now, with a minimum order of 1,000 units, you could put your logo on this cup. Buttigieg is perhaps an odd choice to be Secretary of Transportation, except in this regard. He's smart, capable, charismatic, and has a big fan base. What he lacks in subject area expertise, he makes up for in star power and what I presume will be energy and creativity. He is, in fact, I would, I would go as far as say an excellent cabinet pick. Pretty exciting. This, by the way, was how conservatives looked at the appointment of Wilbur Ross to be Commerce Secretary. He was a star in the world of finance. But Pete Buttigieg is 38 and Wilbur Ross is 83. And Buttigieg is on his first husband and Ross is on his third wife. You can see why the Buttigieg appointment might be a little more injection of the new into things. Trump's secretary of the Vroom Vroom Choo Choo was Elaine Chow. Still is. She is, of course, the wife of Mitch McConnell. Amazing that the secretary of things that go is married to the human stop sign, Mitch McConnell. But politics makes strange bedfellows, which is why I'm going to say Elaine Chow stayed in her job for all four years, being one of the seven Trump cabinet level officers to hold that distinction. Chow's list of accomplishments are, I don't know what they are. They're maybe obscure or hard to discern or overlooked. I can't say. I have no way of knowing. The Trump administration had such little appetite for accomplishment beyond announcing infrastructure weeks that I don't even know if they tried to do anything. I would monitor this, by the way. I was curious. I would pay attention to different agencies and cabinet positions. Betsy DeVos, she did things. She did a lot of things. Some were even okay. The EPA administration, all the different administrators, a couple different administrators there, they did things. Those things were mostly to weaken regulations, but they considered that an accomplishment. What did Elaine Chow do? I've always said that for there to be no reporter from the mainstream press assigned to the heads of these huge federal agencies makes no sense. Yes, the Washington Post, the New York Times, different industry publications have a transportation beat or are a transportation beat. And all these reporters have the PR phone numbers in their phones. But if Elaine Chow took seven weeks off just because she wanted to, would anyone know? I don't think so. And I have some proof. It's that Politico looked at her records for the first 14 months in office and found that she took the equivalent of seven weeks off. 
not including actual vacation. Just time blocked out as personal time, unaccountable time, which a spokesperson for the agency described as both a security measure designed to conceal Chow's travel patterns. Interesting. Ironic. I wonder if the Secretary of Energy's energy usage was similarly downplayed. But aside from this effort to conceal the travel patterns, the spokesperson said other explanations for personal time were, quote, meeting with personal friends, to tending to personal needs, or regularly sharing meals with her husband, end quote. Though since we've established that her husband is Mitch McConnell, a man whose interpersonal skills are familiar to all of us, I'm not sure how personal those meals should be considered. I joke, I joke. And I'm willing to be convinced that Elaine Chow worked super hard, or maybe not. I mean, maybe not working hard turned out to be better for the American interest. But my point is that The Department of Transportation, the Federal Department of Transportation, not unique among a federal agency, has a lot of employees and a huge budget. 55,000 workers, mostly in the FAA, and a budget of $76 billion. That is more than all but five states. Illinois has a bit more than half the budget of the U.S. Department of Transportation, and you best believe there are plenty of journalists in Springfield keeping tabs on where the money goes. And the answer is Blagojevich. How? Still? Uh, I joke. Again, I joke. We're pretty bad at covering our federal bureaucracy. We're bad about paying attention to it. We chase stories about the first lady's Christmas trees by about a 10 to 1 ratio as we do stories of any of these federal agencies, and we're worse off for it. So a little star power, or, you know, the dorky former McKinsey small city mayor version of star power could be good. And to show you just how much I care about emphasizing the substantive work of the agencies, I bring you this Remembrance of Things Trump. In this Remembrance of Things Trump, it is the story of Ryan Zinke. Zinke, father of Wolfgang Zinke and husband of Lolita Zinke, was Trump's first interior secretary. He once rode a horse to work and also expensed a charter flight that he took to address an NHL team in his official capacity of Interior Secretary. KTVQ Montana has details. Interior Department's Inspector General is now looking at Zinke's meeting with the Vegas Golden Knights hockey team. Democratic House members say it appears as though Secretary Zinke and his staff could have taken a commercial flight from Las Vegas to Montana if he did not meet with the hockey team. The NHL team is owned by Bill Foley, a billionaire businessman. FEC filings show Foley was a major donor to Zinke's first congressional campaign. Foley is also the board chairman of the Fidelity National Financial. It donated more than $150,000 to Zinke between 2013 and 2018. Zinke was cleared by the inspector general for all this because the inspector general noted the trip was allowed by the department. And the trip was allowed by the department, the inspector general also noted, because Zinke withheld important details about the trip, such as the owner being a major donor to Zinke and the fact that this speech allowed as part of Department of Interior business did not mention anything about the Department of the Interior. A year earlier, a Montana firm called Whitefish Energy, named after the and by the way, if you want to pick a more energetic animal, I, I cannot conjure one. Sunday morning, 
with a little bit of capers and tomato and toasted everything. That whitefish just jumps off the plate. Anyway, Whitefish Energy, which is named after the Montana hometown of Ryan Zinke, won a $300 million contract for Puerto Rican hurricane relief. After details of the contract came to light, it was canceled, as was Zinke's tenure as Interior Secretary. He submitted his resignation December 2018. And this has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, I keep the cabinet open to scrutiny. Team of buddies. Yeah, buddy, you better believe it. Now, on a programming note, if the show looks longer today, it is because at the end of this episode, we're playing a segment from Katie Lazarus's podcast, Employee of the Month. Katie died of cancer on Sunday night. She was only 44. We worked together here at Slate. I was on her show. She was on my show. She was a fun, probing interviewer. And I think the way you pay tribute to a podcast is by playing her podcast on your podcast. It is a sad loss for people who love great conversation and, of course, for all the people who loved Katie. But first, before that, we have the second part of our interview with Matt Iglesias. Yesterday, we talked about his move to Substack and his coverage of the voting patterns of Latinos. It is a good topic in and of itself. Also, it's a symbol of how some kind of journalism has become harder, according to Matt. And we'll get into that next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Yesterday on The Gist, I spoke with Matt Iglesias about changes in the Democratic Party. We saw Democrats lose support among non-college-educated whites. That's been going on for a while. And now we're seeing non-college-educated non-white voters defecting to some degree from the Democratic Party. Matt said the journalists, opinion journalists among them, need to grapple with that. And the best grappling is perhaps to recognize that they're in a bubble of college-educated activists talking to college-educated reporters. The phrase he used was, we need to get outside our closed loop of woke intersectional politics. Okay, quite a challenge. But I imagined myself as an editor of an opinion publication like Vox or Slate or The New Yorker. And this editor might counter by saying something like, I think, Matt, you are exaggerating the unwillingness to engage in ideas that the world of progressive politics is opposed to. We're not silencing dissent. So I asked Matt, what's his answer to that? 
I think it depends, you know, if things, if it's phrased just the right way, you know, so there's a certain strain of discourse that came up after the election when people would say, well, nobody should be surprised that there were Latino Trump voters. The Latino community is not a monolith, da, 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 da. And so if you say it in the correct register, like that's going to be, that's going to be fine. But there's a, a different yes, register. If you phrase it, if you phrase it, if you phrase it in progressive speak, right? If your sin was to stereotype uh, ethnic minority, then you could make that point. So that right. is, that is a register that's allowable. But so here is something I, I saw on Twitter today. Uh, Herminia Palacio, who is the CEO of Guttmacher, uh, which is a, you know, reproductive rights group. Um, she says, quote, the Hyde Amendment builds on the legacy of racism. You can not remedy a racist history by continuing racist policies in the current and for the future. It's time to remedy the past by taking a bold step for the future. Ending Hyde is racial justice. Uh, so this is about taxpayer funding for abortions. Um, and I, I understand what she means by this, which is that because of the Hyde Amendment, Medicaid doesn't cover abortion procedures. The population on Medicaid is disproportionately Black and Latino. So the people who are burdened by the Hyde Amendment, are disproportionately Black and Latino people, so ending it is racial justice. Fair enough. Spelled out that way, you know, it, it's a perfectly cogent point. That being said, if you look at polling, the Hyde Amendment is very popular. Uh, it's popular with white people. It's popular with Black people. It's popular with Latino people. If you've restricted yourself to Democrats— it's more popular with Black and Latino Democrats than it is with white Democrats. Uh, because, you know, white Democrats are very secular, but there's a lot of religiously observant Black and Latino Democrats. So nothing that she said there, you know, if you, if you understand what she means, none of it is wrong. But there's this convention of talking in this way, right? So it's whatever you want to do. This is like a left-wing feminist priority, is to say, oh, well, it's also racial justice, right? But the actual coalitional politics here is that ending the Hyde Amendment is an unpopular idea that is primarily driven by white Democrats. And it may be a good idea, but it puts electoral victories at risk and does not reflect the desires of the Black and Latino community in the United States of America. But instead of, we don't hear the voices of working class, moderate Black and Latino people in the sort of media nonprofit nexus. Instead, there's a lot of emphasis on voices who speak in this intersectional way where it's all one struggle. Um, and it can confuse people, right? If you develop the opinion that Black and Latino people are crying out for people to stand up for taxpayer-funded abortions, you will reach different conclusions about the United States than if you have the correct opinion that this is an intercoalitional tension in the Democratic Party in which the relevant variables are education and religious observance rather than race. Okay, so a bunch of what you said about 
the Hyde Amendment may be being popular among a broad coalition of people, even some that you might assume are Democratic voters. Seems to me like that is the kind of thing that could find purchase in a mostly progressive media outlet. Certainly, if you, Matt and Glacius and Slow Boring wanted to write it, there'd be no tension. Are you saying there is a tension to writing it? There is a confusion that it might cause the audience? Uh, are you saying that it takes more to get that opinion into a Vox or a Slate than it once did or that there should be? I mean, Will Salatin wrote a good article about this for Slate, um, and he is certainly not somebody who shies away uh, from, from those kinds of controversies. I think it's not that, yeah. like, it's not that you can't say it, right? Like, all these mm-hmm. publications, if you're an established writer there, if you feel strongly about something, but it's that it becomes this, like, event, right? Like, here's Will Salatin with his Hyde Amendment poll debunking, rather than something (laughs) that is just broadly understood in the community, right? Just like the factual information that in general, Black and Latino Democrats are more conservative on social cultural issues than white Democrats, uh, but more liberal than white Republicans, is something that used to be known. Right. Like it used to be the conventional wisdom in progressive politics that that was how things worked. And it's come to be uh, such a such a suffusion of the kind of rhetoric that that I was quoting from Palacio that it's like now you have to be a contrarian to just tell people like, hey, like, look at the polls. Right. It's not part of the general discipline of how things work to sort of interrogate these like one struggle narratives, or even to second guess, like, do progressives go too far, right? Like, are there things that are just unpopular? And if you say it, uh, you're going to get shot down. It's become this very kind of fraught sort of conversation where, you know, you can do it, but it but it just kind of becomes your becomes your brand. Right. I agree with you that is how I see things happening. And it's not that it can't happen, not that there are huge costs or that people get fired, and let's not even bring up the word cancel culture, but in places where making such a claim was essentially a frictionless exercise. You could even argue that a lot of these places were set up to make such an argument. You could argue that, I think that, you know, I don't know, some number of years ago on on the pages of the New York Times in their op-ed section, which, you know, own the fact that they have political positions. It was much more frictionless to bring such ideas to the fore than it is now. That comes at a cost. Exploiting the cost is the rise of newsletters. But I absolutely see that happening. And we're not doing a favor to anyone who wants to get the correct, use the word, I'll say it too, the correct analysis of what really is going on with voters, with the party with American politics. Wait, and you know, I, another, you know, example on, on Hyde, right? When when Joe Biden flip-flopped on this question, Anna North, who, who covers these kind of topics for Vox, she wrote an article June 7th, 2019. It's a good piece, but she just nowhere in the piece discusses the polling on this issue, right? Like, it, it doesn't come up. When normally, if a politician changed their view, right, like abandoned a popular position in favor of a new, different, unpopular one, that's just like something you would talk about in the coverage Mm -hmm. of the decision. Like, maybe it's a courageous stand, right? Like, it doesn't have to be bad that you took up something unpopular, but the fact that you adopted an unpopular view is just like part of normal politics coverage. 
But it sort of dropped out of coverage of this issue because the narrative on the Internet about Biden was that he might be too moderate because he was too moderate for the tastes of people who write on the Internet. And, yeah. you know, I would say in progressive circles, right. I, w- I would expand it beyond that. Yeah. Right. And, and his new hide position was popular in progressive circles. So, you know, it's not it's not that like there was a rule against mentioning its political unpopularity, but it's not what came naturally to a lot of people charged with the coverage. And that then promotes misunderstanding. If you all you see is people being like, hey, this is great. He's getting with the times. And then you see somebody saying this is an important racial justice concern, uh, you wouldn't know that he's taking a position that's quite unpopular with African-American voters. Right. And it used to be, maybe I've been saying used to be too much, but I think that the Derogor, the default in journalism would be to write that article, but then also to acknowledge, you know, here's the political calculation at play. But you wouldn't necessarily expect that if you had sought out um, a liberal publication. Like if you were reading about that in The Nation or The American Prospect, maybe you wouldn't require that. Maybe those writers and those editors would rightly think that their readers, you know, wouldn't want to know that. That wasn't (laughs) of one of their top three concerns. And now So many publications are like that. In fact, now that is the default, I think, maybe. Well, and also just the tensions, you know, so I remember when marriage equality was, you know, a big hot topic, right? And at that time, the coalitional tensions inside the Democratic Party, I think, were quite front and center in people's coverage. There was an understanding that, you know, ground zero for opposition to marriage equality was Republicans, was white evangelical cultural conservatives, but that there was cross-pressured African-Americans and that this was a big deal. And I I remember talking to uh, Martin O'Malley, who was governor of Maryland before the decision (laughs) came down, and he was talking about a marriage equality referendum that they were putting forward in Maryland. And the biggest problem that they had to deal with was finding um, sort of African-American validators, right? Because that was a block of the population that they thought was persuadable, but was more conservative than the white liberals. And so it was just very foregrounded, right? That wasn't like... Like, he wasn't, like, bashing them, but it was the politics, right? He was just dealing with things as as they are. Today, I think there would be a lot of pressure to argue that, like, anything that's good is a racial justice cause, right? So you would, like, come up with some reason that marriage equality is the most important to LGBT people of color, like, which is probably true because it's always people in marginalized communities who suffer the most from, from problems, but that would be a way of obscuring like the basic public opinion dynamics. Um, And, you know, I was talking about just another version of this with regard to the large role that the racial wealth gap has come to play in progressive discourse Um, When it used to be the overwhelming conventional wisdom among progressives that you want to try to suppress explicitly racial conflicts because white people are a majority in the country and you want to like try to keep the focus on majoritarian issues. And that's really flipped around for reasons that just reflect the sort of internal dynamics of progressive spaces rather than any kind of change in political reality. 
So I think right now in progressive spaces, often including the media arms thereof, there is a belief, I think it's a sincere belief, that only progressive policies will not only work and improve people's conditions, but if championed, will be popular. I I happen to think that's untrue, but I think that they really believe it. Mm -hmm. Now, it might be the case that very progressive circles have always, always believed that, and very progressive circles never wanted to bargain or cooperate with moderates. Maybe all that's happened is that these progressive circles literally have gotten bigger and literally have gotten more of a voice. And so now we're just living in that world more than we did when Jesse Jackson's ideas were probably written off as a little more crazy and far-fetched than they should have been. I mean, I think American politics has in fact shifted to the left relative to where Mm -hmm, it was 10 or 20 years ago. And that has maybe led some people to misperceive how much it shifted, you know, so that it's like there's there's a genuine uh, greater public openness to certain left wing ideas. But if something goes from one percent to twenty seven percent, like that's a big change, but you're still at twenty seven percent. Um, and that's where I think like a lot of like socialism and like left left stuff is. You also have generational change, right? So, you know, young people are wonderful, but also just in the nature of things, you know, lack a certain amount of perspective. And you now see a lot of alignment of ideology with age, which is not the case, right? When I was 20, 20 year olds voting behavior was exactly the same as 65 year olds. So, you know, people could be Democrats or Republicans or people could be young or they could be old and cranky, but there was no correlation between those things. Now, young people are much more left wing than older people, uh, which means that I think you have a lot of left wing people who are also young people and just don't like literally don't remember like how things have gone historically in politics and maybe misperceive certain events that are that are taking place or what the spectrum of possibilities are. Then last, we have this incredible uh, polarization along educational lines. And so you have certain occupations like the media that are just dominated by college graduates, which didn't itself used to be a big ideological thing, but now has placed us, you know, college graduates who talk to other college graduates are much more distant from the median voter than we used to be. Matthew Iglesias is the author of A Billion Americans. He is a panelist on The Weeds podcast, and his newsletter is Slow Boring. It's the name of it. It's not an app description. (laughs) Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. Perhaps you've heard the insults, the horrible calumnies being lobbed at Joe Biden and the construction announcement and handling of the announcement and construction of his cabinet. Chuck Todd cited some on Meet the Press. The cabinet's about half um, filled on the big jobs, more so on that. And here's some of the descriptors out there, Matt, by team of buddies, team of careerists, an Obama reunion, weather vanes and operatives, the Goldilocks cabinet. Um, what do you see so far in Joe Biden's cabinet? Because it does seem as if he's given everybody a reason to be upset right now, at least if you uh, cherry pick various Democratic constituency groups. Everyone has reason to be upset, especially if by everyone you mean the least representative, narrowest slice of dedicated political kvetchers imaginable. 
team of buddies. Oh, that is the, what a sting. Donald Trump appointed an oil executive to be secretary of state based on the qualifications that he drilled in Russia. That, by the way, was his best secretary of state. Okay, let's not compare this cabinet to Trump's. Everything's better than Trump, EBT. The critique is that Biden is not as good as he could be. That Biden and his team have been stumbling in assembling the cabinet because the cabinet is, you know, too familiar with each other or perhaps friendly with their boss. Yes, yes, I know. Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote a book about Lincoln and his cabinet, Team Arrivals, and that has taken hold as the ideal when clearly it's not the ideal, shouldn't be the ideal. It works somewhat for Lincoln. But, you know, if you, if you look beyond the three-word title, you might find that the attorney general that Lincoln started off with resigned because he objected to something called the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, if I were Lincoln, I'd rather have wanted someone who agreed with me on the Emancipation Proclamation. That, of course, runs counter to the idea of a rivalry. I'd say Emancipation Proclamation, good. You're going to have to get on board with it, allowing black soldiers to fight in the Union Army. Also good. Sorry if that hurts the idea of the rivalry. And then Lincoln goes and replaces him with his best friend's brother. Oh, James Speed, classic, classic Biden-esque buddyism. Must be bad to be that, that much of a buddy. Also, sorry to stay on Lincoln, but come on, team of rivals? Sure, Seward, Chase, they all ran against him. He collected them all together. There was some disagreement. But you know, Lincoln's first Secretary of War, kind of a disaster, replaced with Stanton, who Lincoln called Mars, who was really great. But guess what one of Stanton's qualifications was to get that job? He was really good friends with the other cabinet secretaries. Not a rival. He was Salmon Chase's bestie. All right, let's move away from the classic team of rivals. Let's talk about Biden's cabinet of buddies. It's so frustrating. The critique is so frustrating to me because, not, not because, oh, I just know Anthony Blinken, he's going to be great. Nothing like that. But it's a procedural critique, and the procedure is always going to be open to critiques. Seems to be three main complaints this time around. The cabinet is not diverse enough, it's not progressive enough, and its members are people Biden likes too much. Think I handled that last one already. But let's talk about diversity and progressivism. Not diverse enough. Here's a political article yesterday, how Biden's team botched his cabinet debuts. Quote, the issue started with the earliest round of personnel announcements for White House senior staff and top cabinet positions, a roster of mostly white faces named to some of the most powerful positions in the administration. And they continued as the team scrambled to contain the fallout from that lack of diversity. Okay, that seems bad, especially Democrat and, you know, you're a white man, you try to govern all of America and all of the Democratic Party. But wait a minute. Four sentences away from that is this phrase, nine of the 14 people Biden has picked for cabinet level posts are people of color and seven are women. So not only is it exactly as gender diverse as America is, it's more racially diverse than the Democratic Party. All right, maybe it's not the sheer number. Maybe it's this. Here's another sentence in that piece. The first two of the so-called big four cabinet positions, Treasury, State, Justice, and Defense, were both filled by white candidates. Okay, but then the third was Lloyd Austin, a four-star general who is African-American, 
And the problem was that he was a four-star general. Look, I do think it's legitimate to fret about the erasing of the line between civilian and military. But to get exercised about the racial diversity of Treasury, State, and Defense because they were announced in that order and not the reverse order does not seem to me an apt criticism of racial diversity. Who cares if it had gone defense named first, then treasury, then state, you'd say a third of the big four are made up of black people or a black person. All right, so let's go to not progressive enough. Yeah, Biden's a moderate. The country as a whole seems more moderate than not. The people he wants to lead the agencies also moderate. I personally think Bernie Sanders would be an exciting choice for labor, but of course, a moderate president is not going to pick an immoderate cabinet. And as far as them being a team of buddies, or they've also been called a team of retreads, a team of the last Democratic administration, this one was out there, team of revivals, no one took that one, that I know of, maybe, maybe that was better, left, unstated. But I I do say, so what? I mean, What is the great benefit of having a team of rivals? If everyone has groupthink and it's wrong, that's not good. But extremely, 14, 15 extremely smart people who aren't all of the same ideology are going to have different opinions. Do you think labor gets in defense's business and says, hey, pull out of Somalia? Do you think the trade rep tells Homeland Security, lower the wall? Do you think the small business administrator gets up in the Department of Interior's business or small business and said, hey, we need those Anwar jobs. Fuck the caribou. I don't know. I just know I've always wanted to say fuck the caribou, and now I have. But you know what? Uh, fornicate this pregame wailing and gnashing of teeth. And that's what it is. Because like a football team, if you hand the ball to a running back, the receiver is going to get mad. If you throw to one receiver, the other receiver will feel left out. There's just no way to satisfy all the constituencies, especially when the loudest part of the party is least aligned with Joe Biden, but thinks the best thing they could do to advance their agenda is to say, they didn't choose our people, they chose their people. Yes, that is what they do. You can't satisfy everyone. You can hardly satisfy anyone before you give people the chance to do the job. Unqualified, stupid, cruel, ignorant, corrupt. If those adjectives described a cabinet appointee, tell me about it. I want to know about it. That would be newsworthy. This is just nitpicky. And someone once said, when you nitpick, you're really just saying, that's not my pick. And you know who said that? You know who said that? Dirk Kempthorne, former Secretary of the Interior and coiner of that department's Latin motto, Irumabo Tarandris. Look it up. And that is it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Margaret Kelly and Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Alicia Montgomery. I should say because I don't often, but they deserve to be cited for their excellent work with Slate Podcasts, Gabriel Roth. He's the editorial director for audio at Slate. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Lone Lou is deputy editor of Slate Magazine. Wanted to mention them. They work hard on making the podcasts you hear, which brings me to a colleague who also made podcasts for Slate and for herself and for her legions of fans. I will say umpuru depuru dupuru right here and now hand the reins over to Daniel Schrader, who will tell us a little bit about Katie Lazarus and her podcast, Employee of the Month. Hey, this is Daniel, one of the GIST's producers. And I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate Katie Lazarus. 
I only had the chance to work with her for a short time at Slate, but while we collaborated, I got to see the inner workings of her sharp comedic mind and extremely large heart. Her energy always filled any space she was in, and her uncompromising passion always made her live shows such thrilling events. Her show, Employee of the Month, was a live show that popped up at different venues across New York City over the years, and a few years ago, Slate began working with her to translate her live event into a podcast. This segment is from our first episode with her, where she interviews Alex Lacamoire, the orchestrator, arranger, musical director, conductor, and keyboard player for the musical Hamilton. I think you'll really hear her passion and skills as an interviewer in this segment, and must recommend listening to the rest of her work. It was so delightful speaking with Alex that we did some follow-up questions. I called him from Slate Studio in Brooklyn. He was off managing yet another production of Hamilton. So, Alex, I was referring to you as a musical maestro because you had so many <laughs> job titles that I didn't know what to call you. What do you call yourself? <laughs> you know, it depends what, what I'm doing on that particular job. Like, I remember when I would uh, meet people uh, at Hamilton, like if they came to see the show, I would say, oh, hi, I'm Alex. I'm the music director and orchestrator of the show. Because those are the things that I felt like most proud of and the things I felt like kind of uh, um, really kind of captured what it is that I did on the show. But, you know, on other shows, I don't actually music direct. Like, I've, I've done shows where I'm just like a, uh, uh, like, I was just a producer on the Greatest Showman soundtrack, for example. Or I was just the dance arranger on Annie, which I did a few years ago. So it depends what it is that I'm doing and what, what I'm asked to do. But for shows where I do wear all the hats, as it were, like, you know, for Hamilton, I, I did the music direction, I conducted, I played piano, I arranged, I orchestrated. It was a lot to talk about. And for me, just saying the music director didn't feel like it, it, it mentions the, the, the writing aspect of what it is that I did on the show in terms of the arrangements and the orchestrations. The, that, that, it all depends on what it is that I'm talking about. You started out, I believe, as a jazz musician, as a piano man? As a piano man. Uh, not jazz, per se. I, I started playing the classical standards. I mean, you know, I'm, I was playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star very early, but jazz didn't start for me until I was in high school. That's where I started to get actual formal training, and then I continued to study it in college. And at one point, I thought I was going to be a jazz musician, and I just thought that's what I would be able to get paid to do. That's what I thought I uh, I would find my my niche in. But then I learned that I was not a very good jazz pianist. <laughs> How did you learn <laughs> and that? People who were, you know, I learned that uh, it partially on the thing that I talked about, where there was a class that I didn't get into, and I realized, oh wow, maybe I'm not as good at jazz as I thought. And also, I started to listen to my colleagues, my people around me, and how good they were at playing certain styles, and how not good I was. And also, I, I just kind of like realized how much I didn't love, 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 love jazz to the point that I think one needs to love, love, love the genre to really become a musician in the field. And one thing I would always say to people is that even when I was at Berkeley, yes, I was buying the jazz records, and yes, I was listening to you know the Bill Evans and, and the and you know the the jazz guitar records, West Montgomery this and the Miles Davis that. But given a choice, if someone were to ask me, hey, do you want to put on a Miles record or do you want to listen to Led Zeppelin? I was probably going to listen to Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to preface. So, for listeners, that you went from Berkeley College of Music straight to Broadway, straight to The Lion King, right? I, I hung out in Boston for about a couple of years, and I did a couple of uh, theater gigs there. I also did about two years playing on a boat, a cruise ship called the Spirit of Boston. Uh, at Spirit Cruises, they have like a chain. I don't know if they're still around, actually. But my job was playing on the band, on the ship. It was day cruises. It was only three-hour cruises that would leave Boston Harbor. 
And it started by playing cocktail music. So you played standards like Someday My Prince Will Come and, and, uh, and Miles Davis Solar. And then, uh, you'd have to play like the easy listening stuff, like the Eagles. And I would sing Billy Joel just the way you are and, and that kind of stuff. And then as the night progressed, you would do like the harder stuff, like Disco Inferno <laughs> and like <laughs> what I like about you. And then I would, like, my big song was Better Man by Pearl Jam, because that was really big at the time. <laughs> Everybody would flip when I do that. It was, it, was, it was fun. So, yes, I did that in Boston for a little while, kind of paying my dues that way. And then I moved to New York and did the Broadway thing in 1998. I don't know if people know, but, like, in comedy and musical theater, you know, doing cruises is, for better and for worse, a staple of making money, sure. even after you've made it sometimes. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, no, I, I, playing on a cruise for me, the, the regularity of it, the, uh, the, the practice of it, the performance aspect of it, like also knowing how to read a crowd. Like I would watch as our band leader could tell, okay, this is not a good time to play, uh, whoop, there it is. You know, we have to like work <laughs> up to that. <laughs> so, uh, it was just knowing that he was able to kind of call out songs on the fly based on how the crowd was responding. I thought that was a really, very smart thing. And, and uh, not only that, but the business aspect, the way he ran the department, the way he ran the band, the way he was the band leader. Like, I really, like, uh, learned a lot from doing that cruise thing. That's a perfect segue because one of your musicians spoke off the record, on the record, uh, Robbie Jost, who is part of Dear yes. Evan Hansen and thankfully played hooky for the evening t- um, yeah. for us to do our interview. I, he, I love Rob. And he's so grateful to you for his his job. But he also pointed out, he said that you have an uncanny ability when lowering your head, and I wanted you to try to explain to me what he meant, that um, <laughs> when you're directing the band, they watch your head and you always hit hit it at the same height. Can you explain what that means? <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, I, I'm guessing he's talking about conducting. Uh, when you're conducting from a piano, if you're using both your hands to play the keys, you can't always lift your hands to show the musicians what it is that you, uh, where you want them to be. So a lot of people, when they're conducting from a piano, they have to nod their head in time to show where the beat is. And some people actually kind of use their nose as like the point of focus. <laughs> some people just kind of bob their head. So I guess maybe what Rob is talking about is, is maybe I'm consistent in, in how I yes. nod my head and, and let someone know what it is to look for. You know, being a band leader, there's a lot of telegraphing that needs to happen. There's a lot of, uh, you have to say, here, come this way. This is where I need to be. And there, there's many ways to do that. And I use my whole body when I do that. I, I try to embody the music. I try to make not just my hands sound like what it is that I want to do, but make them look what, like what it is that I want them to do. And I try to do the same with my head and my, my body and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm guessing Robbie was uh, talking about that aspect of it. But yes. I, I know what he means. And and, uh, and thank you, Rob. You have these ringlets. Like, do you have to keep your hair at the exact same length so that when you <laughs> nod your head... Like, do you get haircuts yeah, regularly yeah, I, I have, to I keep it consistent? It's in my writer. I have to, uh, no, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the other question I wanted to ask you is, you know, Hamilton takes off, it becomes this huge brand, but it is also essentially now a, a franchise where you have all these productions all over the world. And I wanted mm-hmm. to ask about going from perhaps supervising in some to some extent as a band leader, as a musical director, as an arranger, but to managing these large productions all over. Can you talk a little bit about that switch for you? <laughs> that's a great question well a, a couple of things uh, uh for me when i was conducting absolutely there would be times when you couldn't remember a thursday show from a saturday afternoon show they were kind of blurred together uh, and those times 
I would try to just remember, okay, there's someone in the audience who has not seen the show before. There's someone who's having their first exposure to the show and you want to make it worth their while. They're paying a lot of money to see a Broadway show. There's a lot of hype around it. You want to deliver. Um, so I would always try to remember that there was someone who is experiencing us and I want to give them everything that, that we have. And, and just remember that that person's life can be changed by seeing the show, much like Lin-Manuel's life was changed when he saw her rent for the first time. You know, not uh, everybody is built for the, the life of repetition. You know, there's certain people who love the life of that um, consistency, where you walk into the theater at such and such a time, and you punch a clock and you do the show and you go home. And there's people who go years doing that, and they're totally cool with it. You know, there's people who, I think, are still in the cast of Phantom of the Opera who've been there for like, you know, 30 years or what have you, or people at Wicked who've been there for 10 years plus, and they're totally fine with that. I know me personally, I, I enjoy more the creative process. I enjoy the change. I enjoy the movement. So I, I know for me, when I did In the Heights, I only played that show probably a year and a half on Broadway. Same thing with Hamilton before I, I moved on and, and did other things and moved to a different position. So that's kind of where I think my limit is in terms of the repetition. So by and large, what's happening with Hamilton now is that we are remounting the show as it currently exists. And that's not to say that there isn't room for creativity. Uh, I think the creativity now comes in, for example, when you get a new burr and it's time to get to the room where it happens. And the ad-libs that Leslie Adams Jr. sang at the end of the song were organic and tailor-made to how his voice sounds and the kinds of jazz riffs that he likes to do. And I find that every time we get a new burr, there's an opportunity to change the way, of this, the way the song ends based on what that burr's high notes are and where they sound best and what their proclivities are about like how jazzy do they want their turns to be? Are they not a ripper? And therefore, do we need to find a way to make them sound like they are comfortable and that they're still being expressive at the end of the song? So those kinds of moments are great because then it's like, oh, this is a, a way to end the song that's particular to the Philip tour. That's not the same as the Angelica tour and it's not the same as it is in London. So I, I enjoy where those kinds of things can shift a little bit. And also new actors will have different interpretations of, of the way they want the, the journey of the, the, the roles that they're playing. So there's times for things to stretch a little bit and I do enjoy that aspect of it. But by and large, it is definitely more managerial. It's answering emails, it's flying out to cities to check in, to see how people are doing, to make sure that the, that the show is still within the realm of what it is that we set when we last met them. So it, uh, it also be communicating with the music directors and being, making sure that things are happening, that things are going smoothly on the music teams on what is now five different companies of the show around the world. And now that you're doing film, you know, both animated films and live action, are you like the new kid on the block now that you're in that industry or are you treated as you should be like royalty? Oh man, I, I, I'm definitely like finding my way around. I, I'm uh, yeah, a new kid on the block is, I, I don't even feel like I'm on the block yet. I feel like I'm, I'm in the car on the way to where the block <laughs> might be. That sounds like LA. So I, Wait, I, that sounds like you're in the thick of it. <laughs> it's a lot of driving. Yes. I'm not in the carpool lane. Uh, I, yeah, I definitely feel like um, I, I'm still, learning a lot about it. And I feel very lucky that I know some people who are in the scene who I can talk to and get advice from. So I'm very much still observing. I'm very much getting my hand held, which is totally fine with me. And I, I want to explore what this world is and, and, and how I can fit into it. So I, I feel lucky that I know people who are in that world who like I, I can get tips from. And my last question, how much leverage do you have in terms of ticket prices for Hamilton? <laughs> uh, that's not really my, my field. Uh, why do you ask? 
<laughs> just curious. Just wanted to see it. <laughs> you, you know people, Katie. You're good. I, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you five numbers of people that say uh, I'm kidding. Call me. <laughs> Um, Alex Lacamoire, I just want to tell you uh, what a generous person you are and and how delightful it has been to actually really get a glimpse into your world. And I know that for most of us, we will never have your, your true gifts, but you really are mm. a remarkably gifted musician. And I just wanted to thank you for sharing your gift with the world. You're so sweet, Katie. Thank you. I, I'm, I love what it is that I do. And I feel like music is what I wanted to do ever since I was a kid. There's been no other option for me and music is my solace and, and it's saved me a, a lot so I'm, I'm thankful that I, I get to do this as a career thank you so much Katie thank you and and just know that if the Tonys and Grammys and Oscar nomination didn't help I think the employee of the month award is what's going to put you on the map <laughs> I'm going to list that first in, in my bio <laughs> 